You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome, 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 everybody. Welcome back to Fired Up, right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. This is Steve, your host each week, as we look at what's going on in the political world here in the United States. And I want to again say welcome everyone to the show. Uh, We've got a real busy show this week, so we'll uh, kick it off with our COVID overview as we do every week. Uh, We're currently sitting at 46.5 million cases of the disease reported in this country. And 754,000 people have died from the disease. On the positive side, 428 million uh, vaccine doses have been uh, given, and 58.2 of those percent of those are for people who are now fully vaccinated. Uh, in in addition, uh, the approvals have come down for vaccinations for uh, children between the ages of five and 11, uh, which is, as we've said, good news for. Uh, getting them back in school, and good news for mom and dad so that they can go back to working and have uh, life more like a normal. Uh, All right, as I said, we've got a busy show today, so we're going to jump right in. We'll leave COVID there for now. Uh, We're going to start out and resurrect the subject we've been talking about over the last few weeks, and that is the subject of redistricting. Uh, We're starting to hear from states around the country who have uh, redistricting plans that have either been presented to the state legislatures for votes or have been passed and handed off to their respective governors for signature uh, or are uh, still ensued in battles and struggles trying to find the best path to a redistricting effort in some states. So uh, let's start it off, and we're going to start off in Virginia. Uh, we've got some you know, news coming out of Virginia last week that I'll talk about in a minute, uh, but after we finish the redistricting segment here. Uh, so Virginia is one of a handful of states that set up uh, a, a nonpartisan uh, uh, citizen panel to handle redistricting in the state. Virginia's panel consists of eight lawmakers and eight citizens and is evenly split between Democrats and Republicans. So this is the panel that was supposed to uh, come up with a plan to redistrict the state, uh, draw and lay out the new district maps to be submitted to the legislature and the governor for their approval uh, and locking them in. Uh, Unfortunately, the task has Uh, been very, very uh, complicated and fraught with contention among the panels, uh, up to and including several of the panel members on the Democratic side walking out in frustration. Uh, So, you know, it's it's clear that, you know, in the case of Virginia, there are still more problems and a way to go before they get a uh, district map that everybody can live with, you know, and you know this just continues struggle that's been going on uh, ever since uh, after the 2010 election, the Republicans uh, launched an effort to gerrymander to their advantage. Well, what do you mean by that? 
Well, what they did was they targeted under-the-radar races in state legislatures with the goal of taking control of those bodies to control the redistricting process. They even had a name for it. It was called Project Red Map, and it was, by all accounts, remarkably successful. Uh, Republicans uh, have used their newfound majorities in places like Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania to draw district lines that would lock Democrats out of power for, you know, for years to come. In some places, the uh, Republicans weren't subtle about what they were doing. In Michigan, for instance, a Republican aide bragged about cramming, quote, dem garbage, close quote, into certain districts. So, you know, as we come back to Virginia, they were struggling with trying to come up with fair districts, balanced districts uh, that represented the constituents that live there. And it, it seemed to be uh, a very, very difficult task to do uh, without trying to fall back into partisan politics. So, you know, it, it, is, it is clear that, you know, there are many different states that are going through this process right now and uh, that may be having some struggles. You know, as we said, Virginia is having struggles. Michigan and Ohio, uh, they managed to take redistricting out of partisan control, but new panels have had a shaky start in getting off the ground with getting maps drawn and getting them approved. And speaking of Michigan, uh, there you know, clearly was a lot of pressure uh, in Michigan where they put together a panel consisting of 13 citizens, uh, four Democrats, four Republicans, and five independents. Uh, they are working on drawing the state's lines. Unlike Virginia, the uh, commission in Michigan is entirely independent from the legislature. And in fact, state lawmakers are barred from serving on it. Uh, so this came about uh, from a grassroots effort um, that was undertaken in several areas of the country, but Michigan's was by far one of the biggest. Uh, the, the idea here was that Michigan uh, was already one of the most gerrymandered states in the country. Um, and, you know, it, it pulled in really some political novices onto this commission to, to try and address that issue. Um, you know, they, there was a grassroots campaign that went on uh, to empower the redistricting commission. Uh, it included bumper stickers, yard signs, you know, all of the normal uh, public relations that goes uh, with such a campaign. The Michigan Commission, they've been working on their draft maps over the past few months and with few exceptions, um, activists have been largely encouraged by what they've seen. This is according to an article in The Guardian. Uh, While Michigan maps had long been drawn behind closed doors, the commission has done nearly all of its work in the public eye. So, you know, there, there is hope that these uh, nonpartisan commissions uh, can, in fact, serve the task of designing and laying out districts that uh, equitably represent the constituents living there. So, you know, it, it's clear that 
while this is you know definitely a plus, uh, there is work to be done to make sure that the 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 districts aren't so blended that they dilute the vote of native constituencies in those areas um, to sacrifice them on the altar of parity. Um, for example, uh, again, in, in Michigan, there's already been strong criticism from black leaders and activists who say the proposed maps would diminish their voting power in the state. And again, this comes from an article in The Guardian. Michigan has combined 21 state legislative and congressional districts where minorities have a majority, but the proposed maps could have no districts where black voters comprise a majority, a feature that has raised alarm from the state's Civil Rights Bureau and black leaders. The new maps would dilute the votes of people who live in places with heavy minority populations by cracking them into different districts and combining them with predominantly white areas. This is something we're seeing happening with some of the other states as well. To get a sense of the, the importance of this, um, the article quotes uh, Tanji Array, um, and I think this quote really frames the whole uh, argument and purpose of redistricting uh, in that it says, quote, we want representatives that look like us, live with us, and understand the issues that Detroiters have. And you could substitute, you know, whatever city, county, or state name in there, and the statement stands. You know, you, your objective in drawing district maps should be to have the ability to have representation that looks like the people who make up that district. Um, what happens in a lot of times is, you know, what happened with the initial maps that were drawn uh, in Michigan, where nearly 80% of the Detroit population being black was uh, diluted by merging their district and linking their voters in Detroit with voters in suburban whiter areas, you know, and you know this this was something that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was created to provide an opportunity for Black people and and other minorities to rep to elect representatives that look like them and of their choosing. So you know, according to Betty Edwards, uh, a lifelong Detroit resident. She told the commissioners in a public hearing, your current maps crack Detroit and make this impossible. We want, as she said, we want representatives that look like us, live with us, and understand the issues that Detroiters have. And again, this was another Detroit re resident, Tonji Array. Uh, she told the commissioners at an open hearing in October. So the commission in Michigan, no, no pun intended, uh, has been getting... Uh, a lot of uh, pushback on the maps that they've been working on because they don't reflect the populations of the, uh, the areas that those districts comprise. Um, you know, and you know, this is not something that is new. However, it's the, among the first time that it is being 
uh, aired out in the open and openly criticized and openly talked about uh, in, in the redistricting process um, you know, going on in, 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 state, in all of the states because all 50 states have to do this. So when you look at Michigan, um, you have to look at their next door neighbor, Ohio, where reformers there uh, had been monitoring what was happening in the Mich Michigan instance. Um, uh, a lady by the name of Catherine Terser, who's the executive director of the Ohio Chapter of Common Cause, uh, has been working for decades to get Ohio to adopt a new process for redistricting, just as they did in Michigan. Republican lawmakers carved up the state in 2011 to give themselves a majority in the state legislature and a 12 to 4 advantage in the state's delegation. And, you know, this, this uh, effort to change the, the nature of districts in Ohio has been repeatedly voted down, um, you know, in, in the form of redistricting reform proposals including a 2012 effort to create an independent commission uh, similar to what was created in Michigan. But, you know, in 2015, you know, Tercer and other reformers in the state achieved a breakthrough. Voters approved a constitutional amendment that gave redistricting power for state legislative districts to a seven-person panel of elected officials from both parties. It required the panel to make its decisions in public and set out several criteria the panel must follow, including one that says districts can't, quote, unduly favor or disfavor a party or incumbents. And, you know, it, it was slated to take in effect uh, this year after the 2020 census. Uh, so what you would expect to happen is that a new process would be followed. But, you know, Tercer and other uh, watchdog members uh, were dismayed to see that the Republicans ignored the new guardrails and drew severely gerrymandered maps anyway. Overriding Democratic objections, the panel adopted a plan that would give Republicans a veto-proof supermajority in the state legislature, even though Republicans have consistently received around 54% of the statewide vote over the last decade. Republicans said they should be entitled to as many as 81% of the seats in the state legislature. Their rationale for that, again, according to the article in The Guardian, was sketchy. They said they were entitled to such a high vote share because they won 81% of the 16 previous statewide elections. Let's unpackage that a little bit. A political party that has consistently received around 54%, which is a statistical majority of the vote statewide, thinks that they should receive 81% of the seats in the state legislature because in the prior 16 elections, they won a higher share of the votes, uh, even though this redistricting only focuses on the counts reflecting the immediate past 10 years. Um, you know, and, and I think if we look around at various 
states and also uh, you know we can also see parallels to this in you know our our federal houses as well the, the House of Representatives and the Senate that there is this uh, expectation of privilege that seems to be held by you know the Republican Party that they are entitled to a bigger share of the pie for you know whatever of reasons that they have so you know something that you know we need to be aware of the thought process here and make sure that we are doing whatever we need to do that uh, makes that less of a factor uh, whether you're talking about Ohio or Michigan or Virginia or Pennsylvania uh, all of these states we need to be paying close attention to to make sure that whatever redistricting is going on uh, that there is you know full input and participation that the process is transparent and subject to you know review and visibility by the public so we will we will keep an eye on that and we will keep you posted uh, as the weeks go on and more and more states uh, bring their maps out into the light we'll take a look at those as well and one other uh, related story uh, that also came out um, on the 1st of November the Colorado Supreme Court unanimous, unanimously approved the congressional redistricting pan, plan that the state's independent congressional redistricting commission approved on September 28th. Uh, the map will take effect for Colorado's 2022 congressional elections. Uh, the court's opinion said for the first time the state's congressional district map is not the product of politics or litigation. It is instead the product of public input, transparent deliberation, and compromise among 12 ordinary voters representing the diversity of our state. Uh, the plan surely will not police everyone, but again, the question before us is not whether the, con the commission adopted a perfect redistricting plan or even the best of the proposed alternatives. The question is whether the plan meets the requirements of Article 5, Section 44.3, uh, which is of the uh, Constitution. And they, they say, based on our review, that the commission did not abuse its discretion by applying the criteria in Article 5, Section 44.3. We therefore approve the plan and direct the commission to file the plan with the Secretary of State by December 15th. So, you know, it, it, it is possible for a, uh, a plan to come forward, at least according to the review of the Supreme Court in the state of Colorado, that uh, seems to meet uh, the requirements of the law and does what it's supposed to do. Um, although, you know, not without any little wrinkles, uh, according to the Denver Post, uh, the approved map gives, quote, comfortable advantages to each of Colorado's seven incumbent members of Congress, Democrats Joe Negus, Jason Crow, uh, Diana DeJet, and Ed Perlmutter, and Republicans Ken Buck, Lauren Boebert, and Doug Lamborn. Uh, on the state's new 8th district, uh, they wrote, recent election results suggest the new 8th Congressional District 
will be a close race in 2022. So, you know, overall, I think the the Colorado uh, result kind of bears out what the intention of, you know, fair redistricting laws is supposed to be. So, as I said, we will keep an eye on the states as they roll out their plans. Uh, we'll let you know what we find out. I'm United States Surgeon General Jerome Adams, America's doctor. And all across our nation, we've taken steps together to slow the spread of coronavirus. Now we must continue to take personal responsibility to protect ourselves and our loved ones. Because even though not all of us risk a severe case of coronavirus, we all risk getting it and spreading it to others, maybe without even realizing that we're sick. So if we want to get back to school, back to work, back to worship, and back to overall health, there are things our country needs to do. We need to follow state and local guidelines, take extra precautions if at higher risk, wash our hands frequently, stay six feet from others when we can, and when we can't stay six feet from others, please, I'm begging you, wear a face covering. These small actions will make a big difference. So I'm asking you to say it with me, America. Coronavirus stops with me. You can learn more at coronavirus.gov. Produced by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services at taxpayer expense. All right. In other news, uh, there was an NPR poll that came out on the 1st of November. And uh, this poll reports that uh, according to a survey of independents, they believe that the Democratic Party, more than the Republican Party, is, quote, the bigger threat, close quote, to American democracy. And this was a poll conducted by NPR and PBS, uh, along with um, the Marist organization. And the poll sought the response to the question, in general, which party do you think is the bigger threat to democracy in the United States? 41% of independents said the Democratic Party, while 37% said the Republican Party. Among national adults, 42% said Democratic Party, while 41% said Republican Party. And among national registered voters, 43% said Democrat, 42% said the Republican Party. And the, the poll report goes on to say, additionally, in response to that question, 47% of white college graduates and 56% of white respondents who didn't graduate college said that it's the Democratic Party, while 70% of blacks said it's the GOP. Among Latinos, 39% said it's the Democrats, while 45% responded it's the Republicans. So, you know, further breaking that down, 36% of Gen Z slash millennials said the Democrats are a bigger threat to U.S. democracy, while 43% responded it's the Republicans. Among those between the ages of 41 and 56, known as Gen X, 43% said it's the Democratic Party, while the same percentage replied it's the Republican Party. And finally, among national adults, according to the poll, 81% replied, there's a serious threat to the future of our democracy, while 15% said otherwise. All right, so I've thrown a whole lot of numbers at you. We'll kind of look at what, is, what, is, or what does it mean? What do I think it means? Well, 
I, I think if you look at uh, the the recent uh, news, the recent uh, information coming out, uh, in particular since the Democrats took over uh, control of the White House, uh, you know they control the Senate and they control the House. Um, obviously, uh, they're in control of the levers of government, and in some small part that would factor into voters and and citizens in general believing that the Democrats are more responsible uh, for the the problems and the, the 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 threats to our democracy uh, than the Republicans are now the fact that the the poll numbers are close uh, means you know that in general, the public does not let the Republicans off the hook for complicity in the problems that we have. And that's a good thing. As I've said on this show many times, both Democrats and Republicans own the problems that we have. Uh, they are the leaders that we have elected, regardless of which party they're in. We elected them to go to our government centers and handle our business on our behalf. So the fact that things are not working well, the fact that there are struggles, the fact that there seems to be this gridlock going on in Washington is not just the party in power's problem. It is the whole of elected uh, leadership that uh, can be held accountable for this. And rightly, they should be held accountable. So, you know, for, for you Republicans out there, uh, you, you can't just sit back and, and giggle and laugh at how much the Democrats are taking heat from you know, your leaders because at the same time, they're not getting anything done for you uh, as well as for the rest of us out here. And for Democrats, um, you know, we're, we're going to talk about this um, in, in a minute, but you know, clearly the public believes that you are in charge that you own it, and that you're responsible and accountable for it. So that message needs to be taken seriously by the Democrats uh, in government all up and down the line. Now, let's talk about this, this idea of you know, accountability and you know, what the, the Democrats are or are not doing. Uh, if you've heard the news this week, uh, the uh, House approved the uh, uh, 1.2 trillion dollar uh, uh, reconciliation infrastructure bill uh, for President Biden, and they are under the the gun and and working to get done on approving the 1.75 trillion so-called soft infrastructure bill, uh, otherwise known as the Build Back Better uh, bill, uh, to get that package to the president's desk for signature also. And, you know, it is, you know, high time. The, the 1.2 trillion bill was passed back in August. We're now in November. Uh, when that bill was passed, and I've said this on this show, when that bill was passed, it should have gone to the president's desk for signature. Uh, I understand that progressives wanted to make sure that both packages get through. But part of the issue we're having with getting things done in this country is that we're not getting things done. Uh, you know, if the Democrats had shown, you know, the, the leadership and, you know, 
for lack of a better term, the backbone to put that bill through, get it signed, and get it into action, I think, in my opinion, they would find a whole lot easier path to travel in terms of public opinion uh, in, in getting the second bill through. Uh, nothing breeds success like success. So, you know, if, if you wanted to prove that you're getting stuff done, then what we need to see are those signs going up along our highways and by our bridges, you know, saying our tax dollars at work, uh, you know, the uh, Biden infrastructure plan is fixing this bridge or is repairing or rebuilding this road or is bringing internet out to all you good people out in the rural areas of this country. As promised, we are delivering. If the Democrats uh, continue to allow the Republicans to draw this out, you know, taking us into the, the, the height of the political season as we roll up to the midterms, Democrats are going to lose and lose big in both the House and both the Senate. Now, I say that fully understanding that all of the odds makers have it that the Democrats are going to lose their majorities in those two houses anyway. But it could be the difference between a relatively close, you know, margin uh, that the Republicans control to a blowout like we, we saw in, in several other occasions, even most recently in the 2010 midterms uh, under President Obama, you know, you know, we could be seeing a 50 or 60 seat swing in the House alone. So the Democrats clearly need to get off the dime, get these projects going, whatever you've got that shovel ready out there, that bill needs to get signed so that that money can begin to be allocated so that those projects can begin to move forward so that your candidates for, for election and re-election in 2022 can stand there and point to something and say, this is the result of the work we've done on infrastructure within the Democratic Party. You know, that's how this should work to the best advantage of Democrats in the House and in the Senate. Now, what we will see happen, and I saw this happen when the Affordable Care Act was passed back in uh, 2008, 9, 10. The Democrats passed the ACA. The Republicans tried more than 12 times to bring it forward on a vote to repeal it and failed. They tried several other tactics to try and, you know, strip components out of the ACA beyond just the, the, um, the, the mandate choice, um, they tried to, you know, to gut the ACA to make it essentially worthless. All of those efforts failed. So then what did we see? We saw case after case in areas around the country, Republican uh, elected officials, House and Senate, standing before their crowds saying, see, this is what I got passed in the House or I got passed in the Senate when nobody was questioning them to the fact that no Republicans voted for it. So if you didn't vote for it, how can you stand there and take credit? 
So it'll be interesting to see if the Republicans repeat that tactic. Uh, and it will be a shame if Democrats don't call them out on it. So if, you know, uh, uh, if a Republican is going to stand up and talk about how they, you know, work to get the infrastructure packages through, and unless they were part of the groups that voted, like in the House, there were a dozen Republicans that voted with the Democrats on getting this first bill through. If they're not part of that 12-person team, then, you know, none of the other couple of hundred of them uh, have a nickel in the conversation uh, on look look at how well I did in getting the infrastructure bill through. You stood in obstruction to it. So, you know, the Democrats could not only achieve some solid political ground to run on for 2022 and 2024, but they also could make sure that the correct story is told about just what happened in the House and in the Senate with regard to these infrastructure packages. Um, you know, there, there's been a lot of uh, finger pointing and he, should, he said, she said kind of stuff going on. What we're waiting on on the second bill is for the Congressional Budget Office or CBO to come out with its score that is its report on how much this bill is actually going to cost. And that will be the determinant on whether, whether or not, as the Democrats say, that this bill is fully paid for and will not increase the debt or whether it is going to increase the debt because it is not fully paid for and revenue will need to come from somewhere. So we will wait for the CBO score to hear that. Once that score comes out, it is likely that the, the vote will occur and uh, it is also likely that the bill will pass probably on party line vote, uh, maybe with a few Republicans crossing over to support it as well. We will see and we will keep you posted here on Fired Up. All right, let's, um, let's move, uh, change gears a little bit here. Uh, there was an article that came out, uh, again, November 1st was a very busy news day. Uh, but this one caught my attention uh, because it talks about um, Republicans pushing so-called hit-and-kill bills to allow motorists to run down protesters. And this, you know, if, if you can remember, the, um, the protest in Charlottesville uh, from 2017, Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, um, as the organizers of that rally are standing trial in a civil lawsuit, Republicans across the country are organizing to pass so-called hit-and-kill bills that allow motorists to run down protesters. And uh, this was a report from the Boston Globe that reported on a Back the Blue Act signed by Iowa's Republican Governor Kim Reynolds. The bill took the side of drivers who run over protesters. In June of 2020, the driver of Reynolds' state-issued Chevy Suburban struck a De Des Moines Black Liberation Movement protester who was urging the governor to restore voting rights. Uh, 
uh, and quote, it says, Iowa is one of three states, along with Oklahoma and Florida, to enact laws this year giving drivers some degree of legal immunity if they use their vehicles to hurt protesters. Part of a wave of hit-and-kill bills introduced in 13 other states by Republican legislators since 2017. Most of these proposals came after one of the most sustained periods of demonstration in U.S. history following uh, George Floyd's murder, and the effort to crack down on protesters has sent a chilling message to activists who believe it will encourage violence against them, the newspaper reported. Uh, there is currently pending legislation in Tennessee, New Jersey, and Washington. So we have uh, three states, Iowa, Oklahoma, and Florida, have enacted laws that give uh, some degree of protection to drivers that hit um, you know, and injure or hit and kill uh, protesters uh, and legislation pending in Tennessee, New Jersey, and Washington. This, you know, is continuing, in my opinion, this uh, cowboy mentality of, you know, the law of the streets kind of approach to things. Uh, and now we're getting to the point where if you have a peaceful protest and you know, someone or some other group doesn't like it, uh, do they now have protection if they get into their Chevy Suburbans or their, you know, their Chryslers or their, you know, whatevers and run through the crowd and mow down people and injure, hurt, maim, and kill? Uh, are, are they to be protected against any legal repercussion by the victims? Uh, this is a concerning thing, and you know if Republicans are in fact pushing these bills, uh, that on on never mind partisanship, on humanitarian basis, this is something that we the voters need to to uh, express our opinion on, our strong objection, hopefully. Um, but you know it, it it should not be. Uh, allowed, encouraged, or favored for someone to drive their car through a crowd just because they do not like the message. So, you know, something, again, that just came across my radar and I wanted to to bring it out. Uh, the article uh, continues with the Republicans' rationale for backing the bills, that it is people behind the wheel of a vehicle weighing thousands of pounds not pedestrians who are scared and at risk during protests that have been overwhelmingly peaceful and also reveals the extreme lens with which many conservatives see Black Lives Matter and other protesters and the legitimacy, legitimacy of their dissent, the newspaper reported. The new laws and proposals come after a sharp rise in people driving their vehicles into protests. Uh, a Boston Globe analysis found 139 instances of what researchers call vehicle rammings between Floyd's death on May 25, 2020 and September 30, 2021 that caused 100 injuries and killed at least three people. 
you know, and, you know, the, the fear is, as Nick Robinson, who's a senior legal advisor of the International Center for Not-for-Profit Law, uh, warned that the new laws were just a recipe for disaster. There, there's this kind of vigilantism that's returning, Robinson said. If we deem these protesters to be rioters, we're going to take the law into our own hands. And if that means injuring them with our vehicles or killing them with our vehicles, we have an expectation that the state will protect us. Uh, that is a very worrisome statement and is something that we need to to uh, address and we need to communicate about. Uh, there's a big difference between a protest and a riot. Protests are, are by nature and for the most part nonviolent expressions of disagreement between the people and another entity, whether it's a government, whether it's a business, you know, etc. A riot is a violent, destructive act that causes damage to property, causes injuries to people, uh, and is very different. Both of these cannot be addressed in a, uh, a sledgehammer approach. If people are peacefully protesting, that is protected by the Constitution. Rioters are not. They are breaking the law. So law enforcement needs to deal with the rioters, not vigilantes in pickup trucks. So we will keep an eye on this as well and let you know what transpires from it. A very, very disturbing uh, article. Um, so we'll, we'll do the last segment on something maybe a little tongue-in-cheek. This has come out of my San Antonio news source, and they're reporting that billboards have started popping up in Texas and are being funded by Republicans fed up with these audits of the 2020 vote. Now, these billboards all say, you know, basically two words, Trump lost. Um, you know, former Republican Donald Trump has been pushing for audits, even in states where he won. But some anti-Trump Republicans are putting their foot down in the Lone Star State. My San Antonio reports that three billboards have sprung up in San Antonio that bluntly declare that Trump lost, while at the same time demanding no more audits of the 2020 election in their state. Uh, the article continues, according to My San Antonio, the billboards are being sponsored by an organization called Republicans for Voting Rights that is spending $250,000 to pay for billboards in Texas, Georgia, Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Virginia, Wisconsin, and Arizona. A Trump-backed audit in Arizona conducted over the summer failed to prove that the former president actually won the state and, in fact, gave President Joe Biden more votes in his tally of the results than the state's official count. Uh, despite this, Trump has continued to push for more audits of the election in several states, in states including states where he won, such as Texas and Florida. So, you know, uh, again, maybe we end on a little lighter note here. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that 
the the former president uh, with regard to you know the election in 2020 needs to pack it up. All right, we need to move our country forward, not backward. We need to look forward. We need to look to the 2022 midterms. We need to look to the presidential cycle in 2024. We've got two infrastructure bills that will drastically help and improve conditions in this country and create millions of jobs. We've got uh, you know, climate conditions and other responsibilities, uh, uh, you know, home and abroad, that we need to address. We need to be dealing with you know, what is going on in China and, that, and how that is impacting our economic progress here. We've got supply chain issues that we need uh, to get truck drivers trained and on the roads to move these supplies out and get people uh, the things they need. You know, we need to be negotiating in, in full throat with OPEC and other oil producing countries to get oil flowing so that gasoline prices can come down and not continue to go up, you know, and so forth. We have a whole raft of problems and challenges that face us. Uh, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time, energy, resource, and money looking back at a completed election that has been proven time and time and time again to have been fair and factual all up and down the board. So my thoughts, my opinion, uh, if you disagree with this opinion or any of the other things that I've talked about today, please send an email to the show, firedupradio at yahoo.com. Send me your thoughts, you know, send me your rants, send me your complaints, whatever. Let's talk about it. Let's communicate about it. That's firedupradio at yahoo.com. All right, so we'll end on that note. You've been listening to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. And I want to thank each and every one of you for listening, as you do each week. Uh, please communicate with us on the show. Let us know how we're doing. Give us your thoughts. Give us your complaints, etc. Uh, make sure that you're doing everything you can to keep yourself safe against the pandemic. Uh, those of you that haven't, I urge you to get vaccinated. It is the best way to protect yourself, your family, and now, of course, your children can be protected as well. Uh, so let, let's do our part to make sure that we're staying safe to help keep our country safe. Everybody, have a great week. Thank you for listening. This is Steve. I look forward to speaking to all of you again in seven days. Wherever you stand, I'm calling every woman, calling every man. 
We're the generation that can't afford to wait. The future started yesterday, and we're already late.